So the year uh, was 1995. It's late April. Uh, 1995, for those of you that are a little bit younger, is a really auspicious year. It's the year that the greatest of all time, Michael Jordan, came out of re retirement the first time. Uh, it's also the year the internet actually became a viable thing. And um, my wife, Kelly, was great with child only a few weeks from delivering our first oldest child, Grant. And if you are, where are the parents, by the way, in the room? If you're a parent, raise your hand, be proud of it. Um, if you're a parent, you understand this. The, the biggest tension we had at this point is, do we buy a minivan or drive something else? <laughs> and we had read in the scriptures nowhere that uh, this verse is, um, thou cannot drive a minivan and maintaineth your swagginess. We had read that somewhere. Um, I'm pretty sure it's the message translation. And... <laughs> And my wife was dead set, we're not buying a minivan, and I concurred, okay? I'm like, yes, okay? So we decide just a few weeks before our oldest is born to purchase, I brought a picture, a 1995, we bought it brand new, 1995 Nissan Pathfinder, okay? Now, some of you are like, you should have bought a minivan. But listen, <laughs> we drove this Pathfinder for over 13 years and put almost 300,000 miles on this Pathfinder. But this is the best part about this vehicle. I drove it the last three months without a reverse gear. Now, some of you are like, that is impossible. No, it's not. Because I'm like you. I went to my mechanic when the reverse gear went out and I said, the reverse gear has gone out in my truck. He's like, you don't need it. And you start doing research, and here's the harsh reality for most of us in this room. You don't realize this, but you only go backwards in your vehicle less than 1% of the time that you drive. But here's what I started doing. I started panicking because I'm thinking that means that every time I park, i got to park on an incline. That means that I'm going to have to put it in neutral and back up. That means I'm going to have to learn how to Fred Flintstone and, hey, Fred, and use your left foot and open the door. I mean, it was, but, but it caused so much chaos. And it was a great picture to me where a ton of us are in this room. Because especially the younger you are, in our culture, you can begin to assume that your best life is an easy life. The best life is an easy life. And here's how it starts translating for a lot of us in this room. This is what you start thinking. If it's hard, if it's slow, if it's difficult, if it's tough, it's not for me. And where we go this morning, ladies and gentlemen, where we go this morning, high school student, middle school student, college student, young adult, parents in the room, grandparents, aunties and uncles, where we go this morning, if you're not careful, will feel like a vehicle that doesn't have a reverse gear. It will be tough for some of us, but we have to go where we're going. Some of you were here last week and Miles did this unbelievable job of starting to open up a picture of, this, of the genealogy of Jesus, this idea that your family is crazy. And here's what's interesting when you look at the genealogy of Jesus, especially the book of Matthew, um, we have a tendency to look at this as it relates to the Christmas story and we dismiss it, mostly because it's too hard to try to determine what is it that we can learn from it. This morning, if you've got your Bible, wave it at me. I understand we do that here, okay? Wave it in the air like you just don't care, all right? I want you to turn, if you would, to the book of Luke, chapter 3. We're going to look at the other genealogy 
in the Christmas story. But as you're turning to Luke chapter 3, one of the things that I want us to understand about the power of the scriptures, for those of you that don't know, um, the Bible is not written by Americans to Americans. Everybody okay? It is, a, it is deeply steeped in Dr- Jewish tradition. And for those of you that don't know, um, there is a tradition in the Jewish faith called Sefer Torah, okay? Um, and the Sefer Torah is the book of law. It actually has 304,805 letters exactly. And in the Jewish faith tradition, when you write Sefer Torah, they have trained scribes that use white parchment with black ink, and they have learned how to literally dictate it word for word perfectly to this degree that if a trained Jewish scribe were to write down the 304,805 letters of the Sefer Torah, the book of law, and they make a mistake, even if it's on the 304,804th letter, they have to tear up the entire thing and start over. But this is the part I don't want us to miss because it gives us such an on-ramp to where we go this morning. There is another rule with these scribes that says this, and we'll throw it up on the screens. Every letter must have sufficient white space surrounding it because if one letter touches another letter in any spot, it invalidates the entire thing. Now, some of you have noticed I have ancient Hebrew tattoo uh, tattooed on my forearms, okay? I, I am scared to death one day I'm going to run into a rabbi and he's going to say, that's a shake and bake. But because um, <laughs> if you're not first, you're last. But, he, um, but I even driving here today, Miles, I make Kelly look at my tattoos and go, are they touching? But here's the reason why they believe in the Jewish faith tradition that the letters shouldn't touch. Because they believe, watch this, that, as, that much, as much happens in the white space between letters than what is actually written. There's a ton, ladies and gentlemen, that is unsaid in the text that we miss because we only focus on what was written. And especially where we look this morning, let me give you some context. Here's what's happened leading up to the genealogy of Jesus. For those of you that care, in 587 BC, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire laid siege for two years to the city of Jerusalem. And in 587 BC, they burn it to the ground. And when they burn it to the ground, they take most of the wealthy, handsome, beautiful Jews back to Babylon, and they leave the oppressed and poor in the rubble of Jerusalem. And this is how bad it was. Now, watch this. If you don't do the whole Jesus God Bible church much, you need to understand this. I'm not talking about legend or myth. This is literal history. These people were so desperate in the rubble of Jerusalem that literally, literally cannibalism started. They started eating each other just to survive. But guess what happened during what is called the Babylonian exile? The Sefer Torah was written during that time. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy was written during the Babylonian empire. Why? Why? Because Jews didn't want people to forget their story. 
They didn't want them to forget their story. About 538 BC, Cyrus, the king of Persia, conquers Babylon. He starts letting, at first, about 50,000 Jews trickle back into Israel. About 167 BC, these people called Pharisees and Sadducees start springing up, who are keepers of the law, whether spoken or oral. And then when we look at the book of Luke, Luke wrote the book of Luke around 84, 85 AD. Jerusalem had been burned down by Rome in 74 AD. So why in the world are the genealogies important? Here's the reason why the genealogies are important. We are talking about a people who did not want other people to forget their story. But they also wanted us to know just how jacked up the story is. Just how messed up it is. So when you read in Luke chapter 3, verse 23, these words, and I'm going to read out of the New Living Translation for just a second. Jesus was known as the son of Joseph, and Joseph was the son of Heli. Now, most of your translations begin that with this idea that Jesus' ministry started when he was 30 years old, and then the genealogy starts. But the New Living Translation says that Jesus was known as the son of Joseph, and Joseph was the son of Heli. The New uh, International Reader's Version says it this way. It was thought that he, Jesus, was the son of Joseph. And the English Standard Version says, being the son as was supposed of Joseph, the son of Heli. Now, do you notice the air quotes? Do you notice this constant thought of, suppose, father of Jesus? Why is that there? For two reasons. Number one, <laughs> Joseph was not the biological father of Jesus. He was his legal father, but he wasn't the biological father. And in just a second, you're going to see this. When the biological father is God, your family tree gets screwed up. Everybody okay? But if you are a female in the room, one of the things you also need to understand about Luke is that he is writing to a primary Greek audience. And women, ladies, had zero rights and were considered sub-citizens in that culture. So consequently, when, when Luke starts writing the genealogy of Jesus, he can't start with Mary, but he does a little trick. Because you'll notice what Miles talked about last week in the genealogy and this genealogy are not the same. What was the trick that he used? He says Joseph was the legal father on the ledger father of Jesus, but then he says the son of Heli. Guess who Healy's dad was? Wasn't Joseph, it was Mary. Healy was Mary's dad. And he takes the story and the lineage of Jesus back to Adam, who he calls the Son of God, to show, watch this. Mentioning Joseph was simply a way of looking at the legal documentation of who was the father. It was in the ledger, but he decides to take the, 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 the family tree from Mary's side. And the reason why is because Luke's whole goal is to show all of us oh, how deeply human this story is. 
We have a tendency to take Christmas and put it in such a lofty place. Think about how soft the lights get and how white everything is and we, everything is holy and you feel this hush and we should walk around with candles. Ladies and gentlemen, hear this. It was extremely human. How human? Two Jewish teenagers in love. Let's think about that for just a second. For those of you that care, if you're a middle school girl in this room, Girls in this culture generally got engaged, could get engaged anywhere from 12 to 13 years old. So if you're a parent in the room of a middle school girl, be grateful for America. All right, so <laughs> most historians believe that Mary was not that old. She was a little bit older, but we're talking two Jewish teenagers in love. Not only were there two Jewish teenagers in love, but engagement in this culture meant something so much more serious than it does in ours. Some of you as college students in this room, just being fair, Birmingham, the lake here in Auburn, some of you, you're a little older in your college career, you've been engaged and broke it off already. And you're glad, in fact, he may be in the room and you're like, help me, Jesus, right? You don't, I mean, you're just, you're just glad it's over. But isn't it interesting in our culture how we're cool to give a ring back, we'll break an engagement. In this culture, literally you had the Kedushin, or Kedushin, um, which was a 12-month patrol period that was almost like a legal binding thing. It was a legal binding thing, which meant that it was basically a tryout period to see if you were extremely serious about the relationship. And if there was any unchastity during that time, the legal document would be, um, you know, the legal binding thing would be broken. Then you would have the actual huppa, a seven-day wedding celebration. For those of you that remember, Jesus' first miracle was at a huppa where he turned water into wine. And if you've ever wondered why did he have to turn water into wine, because the wedding was for seven days. They party hard, all right? That's why it happened. So you have two Jewish teenagers who are engaged to be married, and Mary is a virgin. And I don't need to unpack that much here. I want to be sensitive to young ears in the room. But we know that Mary understood the difficulty of this, because when the angel does come to her, she says, but how can this be? In the message translation, it says, I've never slept with a man. And they're betrothed to each other, which means that Joseph, the supposed father of Jesus, has a choice to make. Do I turn my back on this woman who has told me that she loves me, if I could summarize everything I'm saying, this is literally the humanity of what was going on. And we'll throw this up on the screen. An angel says to a Jewish teenage girl, you're pregnant and the father is the Holy Spirit. Let me help us in the room. Sorority girls, where are you? Where are you, sorority girls? Don't... <laughs> All right, okay. Y'all are trying to be so coy, like, I'm right here, try that, whatever, okay. <clears throat> Never been in a sorority, but I see the pictures and I understand y'all have a lot of brunches. <laughs> Let's just say that in your sorority, there's a girl named Mary who's been dating a new dude named Joseph, and y'all have a brunch. 
And Mary walks in for brunch, and she is an emotional wreck. And you, being the caring sorority sister that you are, pull Mary outside. Don't go eat the crab cakes now. Come out here. What is going on? And she says to you, I'm pregnant. And you go, pregnant? You're a, you're a, you're a virgin. You and Joseph barely hold hands. You should have gone to liberty. You know, I mean, you, y'all are, y'all are y'all, too soon. Um, and she asks, she asks the next, you ask the next logical question. You're like, I, is Joseph the father? And she goes, no. It's God. And you go, you cheated on Joseph with God? And God can date? And meanwhile, Joseph is at his frat house and he doesn't know what to do. Bro, why are you so emotional? Because the girl that I love just told me she's pregnant and we've never been together. And she says, God's the father. And you both are going, have you been smoking the hedge and Jordan hair? What is going on? <laughs> and in our culture, terminating the pregnancy would have been an option. And in our culture, you could have turned your back on him or her. And this is what I don't want you to miss. Both Joseph and Mary hear this and go, but I have a box of all these expectations. We all have them, by the way. I've got all these expectations of what this relationship is supposed to be. And we've gone, I mean, we're nine months, eight months into the betrothal period. And this is what's happening. And Joseph is thinking, I mean, this brings so much shame on our family. And Mary is thinking, I know it sounds crazy, but I'm telling you that this is what the Holy Spirit said to me. And I know I'm pregnant. And isn't it crazy how many of us in this room, this is what you know to be true, and you, you're not anywhere near the situation that these two teenagers are in. But every one of us in this room, as it relates to the relationships that you're in, you carry around a box of expectations. Parents, you have a box of expectations as it relates to your children. Kids, you have a box of expectations as it relates to your parents. For those of you that have friends in the room, you, you carry around a box of expectations for them. And this is how I know it's true. Some of you went home for Thanksgiving. You were so fired up about going home for Thanksgiving. You could not wait to see your family. And two hours in, you are ready to come back home. And some of you are dreading Christmas for the very same reason. Because this is what's in your box of expectations, right? It's how your family's supposed to treat you. It's how it's supposed to feel. It's how it's supposed to look. It's what they're supposed to say. It's what they're not supposed to say. It's where you're supposed to go to school. It's who you're supposed to date. It's who you're supposed to hate. It's who you're supposed to vote for. A box full of expectations. Because for those of you that don't know, let me introduce you to the Stock family. Some of you are like, Stock family? Yes, this is a stock photo in a... In a <laughs> 
Hobby Lobby, chicken, Christian, Christian arts and crafts. Um, and this is what we do, right? You have an idea, mom and dad. It's part of the reason why you're here this Sunday. You've got your kids and ACC kids, and I am just trying to meet the expectations that I have in my box. But here's what's insane for most of us in this room. Your family doesn't look this way. Your family doesn't feel this way. Watch this, moms and dads. Your children don't see your family this way. And you don't see your children this way. And you don't see your sorority sisters, and you don't see your fraternity brothers, and you don't see your work associates. This stock photo makes no sense whatsoever because it doesn't match reality. And you are understanding what Joseph felt because he had in his mind, this is what the family is supposed to be like, and it didn't match up. And it's where you are. And it's why all of us in this room, if we get really honest, you've got a decision to make. Because all of us in this room, this is what we do, right? This is what we have such a propensity toward. We expect perfection from imperfect beings. This room is full of moms and dads and college students and high school students and middle school students. You expect perfect behavior from imperfect beings. And Joseph is looking at Mary. And Joseph's family is looking at him. And Mary's family is looking at him. Just like you are looking at your mom and dad. And your mom and dad are looking at you. And you and I are constantly doing this. We're going, I need you to meet my expectations. I'm going to make it worse because this is what I believe I do with myself. I expect imperfect behavior and attitudes from me, but I expect grace and understanding from everybody else toward me. Everybody okay? I know I'm imperfect. Look at the person next to you right now. Look at them. They are insanely jacked up, okay? <laughs> A dude just looked at me and said, you have no idea, all right? They are insanely jacked up. We expect imperfection from ourselves. We just, don't ex we just don't expect the person you just looked at to treat you that way. What we expect is slide some grace and understanding over here toward me. And thus our dilemma. And thus the reason why there's so much tension in the room. Here's a heads up. A broken family is any family where any member of the family has to break to pieces to fit in. A broken friendship is any friendship where any member of the friendship has to break themselves into pieces to fit in. And if we get really honest, relational craziness is just somebody holding a box of unrealistic expectations with imperfect, but in their mind, a perfect picture in it. And the person holding the box believes they're bigger and better than God. And some of us in this room, that's you. You're holding a box of expectations and expecting everybody to meet them. And you can't even see it in yourself. 
Can I tell you how it looks when you go home? It looks like these labels, right? We'll throw them up on the screen. Next slide. I mean, isn't that the way your dad thinks about you? Isn't that the way your mom holds you? Isn't that the way you think about your sibling? For those of you who don't see, loser, failure, freak, geek, womanizer, adulterer, addict, partier, drunk, jock, fat, skinny, ugly, pretty, useless, annoying, boring, extra. She's just so basic. The favorite. Ooh, touched a nerve there, didn't I? Rich, poor, divorced, separated, absent, conservative, but he's black. She's Latino. They're Asian. They're white. You're you're a lesbian? You're gay? Kelly and I had dinner a few weeks ago with a young man who's gay. And his father, Miles, who's a pastor, won't let him have holiday meals at their table. Transsexual, Republican, Democrat, that's just enough right there. Redneck. (laughs) Don't make fun of my truck. Frat, smart, dumb, prude, worthless, entitled, rebellious, rude, lame, punk, fatherless. <laughs> I brought this along. Some of you have wondered why it is that every time you go home, it feels like your weakness. Remember when Superman left Krypton and what became his weakness was this thing called kryptonite? He flourished when he wasn't in Krypton, but when he went home, It was his weakness. For some of you, your home is your weakness because you have to break yourself into pieces to be accepted. And parents, do not miss this. Is that the kind of home you really want to have? Where your children literally have to go, I will jump through every hoop and every hurdle just to be accepted. I think Joseph and Mary felt that. Like, am am I going to have to act as if this isn't really happening? Or am I going to be loved for exactly who I am? And does anybody else find it interesting that this Baby is born to a mother, Mary, and Joseph, his supposed father. And 80-something years later, a man named Paul writes these words. He writes them to a church in this place called Colossae because that little baby grew up and taught us more than we can ever fathom And Paul writes to church in Colossae, and here's 
the emphatic declaration and challenge he gave the church in Colossae. He said, make an allowance for each other's faults. Make allowance for each other's faults. Can I tell you where that started? It started with Joseph looking at Mary and going, I'm not sure I believe you, but I love you. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Now, this is interesting for those of you that don't care. Um, if you're in this room and you are a middle schooler or a high schooler and you don't have your driver's license yet, this is something that you should learn. Because when you become a student driver, they teach you this. And it isn't the law, but it is a principle of our law. That in our law, as it relates to driving, if you are the vehicle behind another vehicle, you are to make an allowance for that vehicle. In fact, the principle is the three-second rule. Basically, it means this. None of us, by the way, follow this rule. It's not a law, but it is a principle. This is the way that you do it. When the vehicle passes some object on the side of the road in front of you, you should be able to count 1,001, 1,002, 1,003 before you pass the same object. That is the principle of the three-second rule. Now watch, this is really important. The more hazards there are on the road, you add one second. If it's icy, if it's raining, if there's incredible wind, or if there's a ton of traffic, you add a second. Why? Because you are more apt to cause a wreck if you don't make an allowance. And this is from experience. Regardless of how close or how far away you are, if you hit somebody from behind, it will always be your fault. Paul is saying, do that with your relationships. Just like Joseph looks at Mary and goes, I don't care what my view is. Yes, I have expectations, but I love you more than my view. So to every parent in this room, would you be willing to make an allowance for your child's faults and forgive anybody who offends you for the sake of the relationship? College students in the room, if you are a child that has a parent, you need to make an allowance for your parent's faults. Because I speak on behalf of every parent in the room when I tell you, we don't know what we're doing. <laughs> your parents are so imperfect. And you've got to make a decision. I will either leave enough room for their imperfection or our home will be literal hell every single holiday and when I come home. And what's interesting is that Paul is not implying that you forgive them for every wrong. He's implying make the assumption that they are imperfect because they are. And for some of you, I get this. We could set up a microphone and have testimony time because this is what you're thinking. Bro, you have no idea how messed up it is at my house with my dad and my mom and their, you know, their whole deal. Or you have no idea as a parent how messed up it is with our son or our daughter or my work associate. You have no idea. 
This is important to remember. Paul goes, make allowance for each other's faults, forgiving everyone who would offend you. And then he says this, and he takes away all of our excuses because he says, remember, the Lord forgave you. I do not make an allowance for you because you deserve it. I make an allowance for you because God made an allowance for me. Remember, he says, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. And then he makes it even worse. He says, above all that, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony, and let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. So make an allowance, clothe yourself with love, and then let peace rule. Let it be the law in your life. For as members of one body, he says, you're called to live in peace and always be thankful. And that same Paul wrote the church in Rome and told them this. As much as it is, as, as long as it has to do with you, live in peace with everyone. Because... And this is going to bother some of us, but it's true. You're either going to tear up the picture or you're going to tear up the person. You're either going to tear up this picture that isn't even real. This whole thing that you've got going on, making sure you're painting a picture in Auburn so everybody sees you as the perfect family, we know you're not. We don't care how many little stick figures you have on the back of your minivan. And your dog looks malnourished and feed them. You're either going to tear up the picture or tear up the person. And if I may, can I tell you what God did for you? Can I tell you what Joseph did for us? Joseph looked at Mary and goes, this isn't going to meet my expectations. But I care more about you than I do my view. Is that your son? Is that your daughter? Is that your parents? Your brother that absolutely gets on your everlasting nerve? Because he's the favorite? Or that wayward sibling? Maybe like my friend who's not even invited to the table Can I tell you what this says about most of us in this room? Your unwillingness to tear up the picture says that you have a standard that's higher than God's. You think you're bigger than God. Because God looked through the annals of time and he looked at the picture and he went, I care more about you than I do the view. I'll handle everything else but I will not tear you up. Your resistance to tearing up the picture 
says you care more about the picture than you do the person, by the way. And your resistance to tearing up the picture also says you really don't understand the gospel because you've made yourself better than God. If you ever get a chance to go to Harvard University, there's a church on their campus. It's called Memorial Church. Memorial Church was created as a memorial for men and women who fought in America's wars. They bring homage to them or or give them homage there for anyone that graduated or attended Harvard. And there's literally, I brought a picture of it, there's literally one wall that has nothing but the names of men and women who have died in our wars. And you can't see it and you can't tell. I've actually been in this church one time. But if you look over on this side, I put an arrow. There's a name. And the name is Adolf Sanwal. And if you notice by his name, it has a very interesting thing in parentheses. It says enemy casualty. For those of you that care, Adolf Sanwald graduated from Harvard Divinity School in 1925. He moves back to his native Germany in the 30s, in 1930s. And what you may not know, because you see enemy casualty, what that tells all of us in the room is that he died as a German soldier in World War II fighting for the Germans. But here's what you don't know. He graduates from Harvard Divinity School and he goes back to Germany and he was a part of the confessing church movement. If you know anything about a guy by the name of Diedrich Bonhoeffer, he was their leader. And Adolf Sandwald began to preach against Nazism. He took a stand against Adolf Hitler and he said, this whole idea that there is a superior race is blatant sin, it's wrong, and we cannot go this way. And what Germany and the Third Reich did as a way to thank him for that is they drafted him into the German army, they had the gall to not let him be a chaplain, and they put him on the front lines in Russia so he would get killed. He got a chance one time to preach. His very last sermon, he simply preached, Jesus resurrected. But his name says enemy casualty. But there's a whole lot of white space. There's a whole lot of white space. So I need to ask you some questions as we leave. Are you willing to pay a price for the sake of somebody that you desperately love? Are you willing to take an example from a Jewish teenager who would, for the rest of his life, be the supposed father of Mary? It's the same way some of you in this room who are a step-parent feel. Are you willing, though, to go to an extreme for the sake of another person. It's because the most spiritual thing that you and I will do today is to choose. And if I could give you two questions for you to wrestle with when you leave this place, it's these two questions. Will you decide your story in a healthy direction this morning? 
And what that's going to mean is you got to tear up the picture because you love the person more. And the second question is even more profound. Will you choose your view today, Dad? Will you choose your view today, Mom? Will you choose your view today, high school student, college student? Or will you choose the who's that's on the other side of your view? In just a few weeks, we will celebrate the birth of Jesus. And you'll also be celebrating a very human man and a very human girl Two teenagers. You can't tell me, college student and high school student, that you don't have the wisdom and wherewithal to tear up your picture. Who decided, I will lay aside my box of expectations because of what I know it is that God's promised me and who it is that I love. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, so much more simple to talk about than it is for us to do. So much easier. And some of us are rattled because we sit here this morning and the truth of our life is that we are the person on the other side of the view. We're the who. And our parents and our siblings' angst against us has caused us not to stop loving them, it's caused us to stop loving ourselves. And others of us, we are that parent. We are that sibling. We are that sorority sister, fraternity brother, teammate, classmate, roommate. And we have such a giant loaded box of expectations. And we hold a picture that needs to be absolutely shredded this morning for the sake of somebody else. Teach us a lesson from the supposed father of Jesus. And may we do something about this today. Would, would, you, would you help us to do the most spiritual thing that we could do this morning? And that is to choose.